invite you to 2 Peter chapter 3 in your Bibles this morning, 2 Peter chapter 3. As you're finding your way there, I like us to imagine a platoon of soldiers standing at attention as they are addressed by their commander. And you look around and you find them standing in a very unusual place. They're standing on uh, grounds of a magnificent manor atop a low mountain overlooking a beautiful rural landscape. And the commander explains that the manor was recently used as a field hospital for wounded soldiers. It's in a terrible state of disrepair. It was once a glorious place, but now lots of trouble there, and there's squalor everywhere. And your job, soldiers, the commander explains, is to occupy the manor and grounds until I return. And I order you to restore everything to ideal conditions. Clean it up, make repairs, Manicure the lawns and gardens, restore the fountains and swimming pools, put everything in order. I will come again. And when I come at war's end, I'm going to come with a large company of officers and we will celebrate with you the great victory. I cannot tell you when that will be, but be sure that everything is in order when I come. And the commander leaves. But days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months, and the soldiers soon divide into two factions. One group is motivated to prepare the site for the commander's anticipated return. And they live out their days expecting that he will be back. But the other group of soldiers draws the firm conclusion, here's what's really happened, the war is over, the commander's gone home, we'll get our orders to return home soon, and we have no reason to clean this place up. This group of soldiers works a little bit here and there as necessary, but they eat long meals. They sleep in every morning. They spend lots of time swimming and hunting and playing cards and carousing and enjoying the amenities that are there. They're not up to speed. They're not the best that could be, but they don't care. There's nothing, there's no accountability, nothing coming. So one group in this scenario is motivated by their anticipation of their commander's return and their accounting before him. The other group is motivated only by a sense of accountability to themselves and to one another. They've got to get along with everybody that's, that's occupying this place, but they're really motivated by nothing else outside of what's there right in front of them. There's nothing outside that's going to intervene. The first group warns the second. You're not living wisely. The second group scoffs at the first for being so naive. Now, in light of Second Peter... Chapter 3, you know, of course, where I'm going with this. But like these two groups, some of us are motivated by the conviction that Jesus Christ will honor His Word. He will return to earth, and we will give account of our lives to the Lord. But there are many others that we live with and know all around us who have no such motivation. Their worldview is devoid of any sense of, personal, of a personal God who intervenes in history. 
It does not drive them. It doesn't direct their attention. It doesn't guide the way that they live their life. And so any notion that Christ will return and hold them accountable for their actions is seen as utterly silly. It's not even worth the time of thought. And if anybody presses the point, they ridicule it and maybe mock it if they're honest. People following such thinking, this kind of thinking, had arisen among the believers to whom Peter writes his second epistle. I don't know if we would come to church today with that thought in our mind, and that this is something we really need to consider. But as we work our way through this book, this was an issue that these believers were facing, and it is an issue which we need to be reminded of from time to time. How do we live in light of the return of Christ? These false teachers that were influencing Peter's readers were scoffing at them. Are you serious? You can't possibly believe that he's really coming back. That's not how you should look at it. Again, they, they rise up from within the Christian church. But they say this is ridiculous. They also promoted then godless living in disobedience to Christ's moral demands. And the two work very well together. The, sen- the lack of any sense of accountability to the return of Christ left them to lead their lives as they felt they wanted to lead them. There would be no accountability. Now, we don't know exactly who these false teachers were. We don't know exactly what they taught. We can get bits and pieces of it as we work it out. That's not what's ultimately significant here, or the Scriptures would reveal that. What we do know is that Peter's readers were under that pressure, and what we know about ourselves, let's admit it, so are we. Did you read the words of that song at the offertory? Those are just weird in this world. Outside of a conviction that Jesus Christ is coming back and that God will hold all of us accountable, these kinds of words just seem strange. If not insane. Judgment, a returning Christ who was crucified 2,000 years ago, our faith remains under consistent assault that voices may be different than what was true in Peter's day, but the voices are everywhere around us mocking and ridiculing and saying, are you serious? So we do need this. We need this reminder. We need to refocus our attention on the return of Christ. We need to stimulate our faith. We need to consider the mockery that comes from outside and to know how to respond. In 2 Peter 3, the apostle addresses this problem. And he encourages us, first of all, to anticipate the attack of false teachers against the doctrine of Christ's return. You can know this is coming. Be prepared for it and know how to respond to the call of Christ upon your life in the midst of this attack. Anticipate the attack. 
Chapter 3, verse 1, he picks up, first of all, and he'll work into it a bit slowly as there's a major transition in the book at this point. Chapter 2, dealing with the false teachers and their moral lives, their immorality, and their teaching. Now in chapter 3, we move into a, a different topic, but one of the ways in which they were directly assaulting these believers. And so he says, transitioning to chapter 3, verse 1, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, in both of these letters, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So he refers to an earlier letter, I think probably 1 Peter 1, although we cannot prove that. 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter is probably his first book, although we're not sure. But Peter has an ongoing relationship with these people, clearly. This is the second letter that I'm writing to you. So he continues to disciple and to edify them. He's not teaching them, you'll notice, new truth. He's certainly not teaching them any novelties. He's exhorting them to exercise discernment based on what they have already learned. When he says, I want to stir up your sincere mind, I think we should think of it in those terms of discernment. I want you to be awake I want you to be connected to the truth of God and to be discerning. And it, just a quick side note, but it reminds us that Christian teaching is persistently repetitive. And I'm, I'm glad for that. One of the wonderful things about it is that the Word of God is rich enough to never grow stale even though we continue to go over the same ideas again and again and again. There's grave danger that lies in the pathway of those who lust for novelty in Christian teaching. Christian teachers should stimulate thought. They do continue to teach new concepts as people deepen in their knowledge of Scripture. But we should always be drawing from and circling back to the foundational truths of God's Word. We continue to deal with the same material. It's deeper than we'll ever get to the bottom of it, but it's not that we continue to look for ways to simply interest and entertain. We come back, circling back to the same foundational truths of God's Word. He says, you know these things. I'm not telling you anything new here, but I want to remind you of something that is vital to your faith. What is that? Verse 2 that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's working to his large point here, but he points them to the authoritative prophecies of the Old Testament Scriptures. Remember them. Not in the sense that they forgot that they existed, but in the sense of bringing their minds to this truth and continually responding to it. Remember these prophecies, and he appoints them also to the truth revealed by Christ to the apostles. So we have authoritative teachers, the prophets and the apostles, passing on the information of the faith, the teaching of our Lord and Savior through his apostles. Now how do you read that last phrase there? The commandment of the Lord and Savior. I take the commandment of the Lord and Savior to be all that the New Testament reveals concerning the will of God to those who are united to Jesus Christ as Savior. There's a lot of debate on what the commandment is. I think it would be all that Jesus has taught, all that we now have in the New Testament documents. We have, in a sense here, a reminder to come back 
to the Old Testament, to the New Testament, to receive the Word of God. Now, notice he says there, the commandment of Christ. There's a growing number of Christian teachers today who virtually dismiss the fact that the Christian life involves active, moral obedience to the commands of the Bible. And we indeed must avoid legalistic rules and regulations that are imposed from somebody's mind outside of the Bible, just somebody's preference that's imposed upon us or something along those lines. But Peter insists, and I think it's significant, that the Christian life includes active obedience to the commands of Scripture. There are some Christian traditions and there are some writing today who are bending more and more toward the idea that what Christ has done is the end of the issue and how you respond to it really is not all that significant, if it matters at all. We need to simply look to what Christ has done. Now, there's glorious truth in that. What Christ has done is the foundation, it's the essence, it's all that we have. We are in Christ. But that life brings us into contact with the commands of Scripture. We don't earn our salvation. We don't grow ourselves just through our own individual efforts. But the Christian life is a life of responding to the command of Christ. There is a moral call upon our lives. Pointing his readers to that foundational truth, Peter now warns them, verse 3, Knowing this, first of all, so you're going to hold to the text of Scripture, you're going to hold to the revelation that's been delivered to you, but know this, be aware of this, verse 3. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. The last days is the time between Christ's resurrection and His return. Nothing more needs to happen on the table of eschatology, on the stretch of what will happen in the last days, we're in the last days. They came with the death and resurrection of Christ. In these last days, scoffers will come. Anticipate them. And you can know two things about them. They will scoff at the truth. They will mock belief in what the prophets have predicted. And secondly, they will pursue their own sinful desires. So they're going to reject what God has decreed the truth of God's Word concerning the return of Christ and our accountability to Him. And so what's going to happen is that they will live according to the desires of their heart, sinfully. Peter now gets specific. Verse 4. Here's the specifics. They will say, what's their message? Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Their message is Jesus is not coming back. This is a foolish myth and you should dismiss it. This is not going to help you in your Christian life, they're saying. This whole concept of Christ's return. Their support is that you notice here a kind of historical uniformitarianism. Everything's going to continue as it has from the beginning. Since creation, God has never intervened in the world, so we are wise to conclude that He never will. There is no relationship between the supernatural and the natural realms. They're not going to connect. Isn't this tempting? Isn't this faith assaulting? Where is He? It's 
been a long, long time. God does not typically intervene in our world. And that's a source of doubt to our faith. And they're assaulting that doubt. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, I think as a reference to the Old Testament patriarchs, indeed since the beginning of time, God doesn't intervene. Now we don't know, again, it's not wise to offer too much conjecture, but there, there seem to be potentially some indicators that they had some notion that God just doesn't get involved with the physical world. For whatever reason, we won't fill in too many blanks. We do know that they reject the idea of Christ's return. That's their teaching. Now in verses 5-7, through seven, Peter exposes the folly of this false teaching. And I think we learn just by the way that he exposes it and the way that he goes about addressing it. He says they're missing something, verse 5. They deliberately overlook this fact. They're missing this point that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. Now that, that, that strikes me as kind of an odd way of addressing them. But I think it's genius. Peter refers here, of course, to the Genesis account of creation in which God created physical matter. And you remember, God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. He creates all matter. It's not eternally existent. He creates everything and what's its form? It's chaotic and it's watery. He then separates the waters from the waters. The waters on the earth from the waters in the expanse above and in between is called sky. And then out of the waters on the earth, he separates land. It's really kind of ridiculous when you think about it, but God has clearly intervened in this world in creation. Peter draws attention here, though, I think, subtly and very wisely to two concepts in verse 5. What are they? There is the Word and there is water. There is God's Word combining with water in the creation of the world. God has intervened originally in that way with Word and water. And what you are not thinking about, false teachers, is that He did it again. Verse 6, and that by means of these, by means of these, that is the Word of God and water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What's he referring to? He's already had discussed this earlier in chapter 2. This is the Genesis account of the worldwide flood. The world was deluged, a reference to this flood described in Genesis 6 and 7. So God intervened in creation and He intervened in the judgment of the universal flood. In both cases, using His Word with water to destroy. In the second event, that is, to destroy. In the first, to create. Now let's go back to Noah's day and think on that event of destruction, of judgment, the coming of this great flood as that canopy of water broke up and poured down upon the earth and flooded it. You know, there was no one in Noah's day that was expecting that. Do you remember in the climate of the original creation, they had never experienced rain? 
It didn't know what rain was. That's not how the earth was watered at that point until that judgment came and the fountains of the deep, that is uh, some type of volcanic activity, water from below the surface exploded from the surface and the waters in the canopy above came pouring down over a lengthy period of time. They had never seen water before. And there's indications in Scripture that they mocked Noah's ridiculous ark and refused to board his floating zoo. Now, now what on earth this guy's doing? But there was mockery and ridicule that anyone would do such a crazy thing. And aren't there people mocking Noah's ark today? This is a place of great scoffing and ridicule that such an account would even be uh, believed by anyone. That's precisely what was going on in Noah's day, this ridicule, this scoffing, the same kind of scoffing they were doing right then. But judgment fell. God intervened in time and space and judged the earth. It's interesting how many of the cultures of the earth, although it's very different and the accounts differ, there is a continuing propagation of the age-old story of some type of really big flood. You can go from culture to culture to culture and find evidences of this account. And of course, it can be easily explained away as just a myth that there's really some interesting connections between cultures of an idea that there was a great flood. And as Scripture reveals it to us in Genesis 6 and 7, that's exactly the case, and no one saw it coming outside of Noah and his family. Now the false teachers overlooked then the fact that God did intervene in the past. With word and water He created, and with word and water He destroyed, visiting judgment on the earth. And this same ignorance clouds their view of the future today. Verse 7, But by the same word... The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So God's Word combined with water to destroy the earth in Noah's day, and God's Word will someday combine not with water, but with fire. And it really calls us to face the question here, do we believe this? Do you believe this word will come to pass and that God will judge the earth? It would not be hard to walk out of this place today and find people that would mock and scoff at such a ridiculous notion. But do we believe it? Is our faith and our confidence in the Word of God such that we know that this day is coming? That will directly motivate the way that we live, and one of the evidences of our belief will be indeed how we live our lives. You can't really hide it. When there's a sense of the coming judgment of God, an accountability before Him, that we will meet our Creator and that God has designed and has promised that this world ultimately will come to judgment and accountability before Him, you can't believe that and not live differently. It will motivate your life. More on that later, perhaps next week, Lord willing. But now Peter had experienced 
what he's talking about, hadn't he? He knows what it's like to have a wavering faith. And as the mocking voices in the cold courtyard of human opinion echo against our hope in Christ's return, our faith in God's promises easily falter. Is Jesus really coming back? So anticipate the many voices who will say, absolutely not, but arm yourselves, grasp the reason certainty of Christ's return. That's now his next project. I want to turn to you now, he says, and let's talk about our faith and let's talk about how we understand the fact that Jesus has not come back for so long. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, Some have taken this verse to reveal a secretive key for dating the return of Christ. And some have actually taken this verse to pinpoint the day that Jesus would come back. That is not at all what Peter's up to here. You notice the word as. He's simply saying God is not affected by time as we are. That's the whole point. Peter is saying God is not, what what seems very long to us does not seem long to him. Now that helps me because it seems very, very long to me. And my faith begins to doubt and waver as I consider this long. But we need to understand the mind of God. He's not affected by that at all. What flies past us so quickly is fully perceived by the Lord, and what seems to take forever doesn't seem that way to Him at all. We must recognize that, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance so don't think of god that he has a sense of time like you do he's not affected by the length of time that doesn't concern him at all but secondly understand this that he's not slow in the sense that he's not lazy he's not uh, disinterested he's not failing to act The false teachers were taking this very idea, scoffing and ridiculing the belief that Christ would return. And when it says the slowness, that seems to be a a word of sarcasm on their part. The Lord is very slow. He's taking an awfully long time, don't you think? Sarcastically saying, He isn't coming back. You're thinking about this all wrong. Their mockery seems to have had a negative influence on the faith of some of the believers. Why is Jesus so slow to fulfill His promise? Well, one could argue that Christ is retreating or failing to act or in some way negligently unresponsive. Listen to what the text says. This is very important. I, I might illustrate it this way. Jesus occupies the position of water behind a dam. He is not negligent. He's not on vacation. He's not forgotten about this. He's not lazy. He's poised to come. The only thing that holds him back is the dam of the Father's patience with unbelievers. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I'd like to just stop there and say that's our God. Not willing that any should perish, 
that all should come to repentance. It's a glorious and beautiful truth. But obviously, it raises some real questions for us to, and to understand. And I, I want to take just a few minutes to work through this. Here again, I mean, Peter has, give, he has given us a full supply of really hard statements in both of these books, hasn't he? And we don't always know where to land on each one, but let's work for a few minutes through this. And I, I think some will track with me better than others, perhaps, but, but I, I think it's important that we take into view rather than just skim over it. So God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Some take this to be, take it in this way. God equally enables every person to be saved. And many people determine that for all eternity, God's will is overruled. That is what God wanted for most people will remain unrealized through all eternity. God's will and command is overpowered by those who reject His purpose to save everyone. Now, every Bible believer agrees that God is displeased with the sins that people commit and with the rejection of the gospel. We all know that God is displeased with that. But do you believe that people can do what God does not permit them to do? That he expresses his desire, he decrees his will, and some people, in fact most people, exercise their will in such a way that God's will is thwarted, it's overridden, and for all eternity they will have their will above God's. I'm among those who believe this is impossible. That God exercises absolute sovereignty over all that comes to pass. He doesn't stop short ever. He cannot be overridden. I believe the Bible teaches our salvation is first and foremost, secondly, the choice of God. It's a choice that God makes. We make that decision as well. We freely, willingly respond to the gospel. But God, as Scripture reveals, is the initiator and no one will override His will. Ever. Now some who believe in God's sovereign ordination of all that comes to pass then read the passage this way. View number two. God does not desire that those He has chosen for salvation will perish. Now, I don't know how that hits you, but it really seems to me to be a non-statement. God is not willing that those He chooses for salvation will perish. No kidding. I mean, it's, it's self-evident. It doesn't say anything. And so the third view, which is left, and the one that I would hold, I understand this verse to be an expression of God's desire in distinction from God's sovereign decree. So God wants everyone to be saved. He takes no joy in the damnation of the wicked. But for reasons only God can know, and I quote Ephesians 1, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of 
his will. Ephesians 1. So if God chooses only some for salvation, which the Bible, I think, clearly teaches, and if he desires that no one perish, how do we understand this seeming contradiction? I understand verse 9 to be an expression of his heart desire, his longing for the lost. Can I say it again? You probably remember this when I'm dead. I say this so often. But I did not want to get out of bed today. But I wanted to get out of bed today. And because I wanted to get out of bed today is the only reason that I'm here, because I didn't want to get out of bed today. I decreed what I did not desire for greater ends. And I cannot tell you the mind of God. I cannot explain it. I, 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 I can only begin to grasp it. But for greater purposes and greater ends, a God whose will will never be thwarted has chosen to decree some things that He does not desire. So God never desires sin. He never desires the punishment of the wicked. And yet no one will be able to say through all eternity, I violated the decree of God. It is impossible for the will of God to be overridden or for anything to happen that He does not order and permit. Nothing. Well, that's a debatable point. And I think as we work with it, we are remiss, we are failing if we just ignore the discussion. And I think on the other hand, we are failing if we turn this into a fight and an argument and build up parties that differ with one another. I think we can have uh, deference to one another in love and to work out these matters and think through these things over time. And certainly there is change and development and growth as we work through these matters. But I think I've tried to highlight some of the issues that we really need to grapple with. And some of you say, this isn't comfortable conversation. That's all right. And if a church ever gets to the place where re revealing the Word of God, speaking, teaching the Word of God is all comfortable... You're in the wrong church. This book is discomforting over and over and over again to us in our sin and in our mental weakness. But let's grapple with it. Let's think about it. And let's come back to what is crystal clear here. God is not willing that any should perish. There's not a, a streak in Him of hatred that takes joy in punishing the godless. But there is a reality here that He will. And when you think about it logically enough, reasonably enough, work it out long enough, you will realize there can be no other end. People talk about the return of Christ and accountability before God as myth and ridiculous. What is irrational is the idea that the sin and the wickedness and the injustice of this world is going to go on unpunished. 
and uncorrected and unaddressed. There is a God who has created this universe. There is a God who has intervened in time. And there is a God who will intervene again. And the Word promises this. But while God does not desire that any should perish, He will indeed orchestrate such a destruction. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come. And if, if, if the ancient Greek text could use underlining, which it didn't, will come would be underlined. The day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief. And then, when it comes, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I plan to spend more time on this verse next week, but to finish off the thought, the day of the Lord will come, refers to the end time event in which God judges the ungodly and vindicates the righteous. That day may come at any time. It will arrive unannounced like a thief in the night. Nobody knows when it's coming. Jesus said while He was here on earth, I have not been given that information. In His humanity, that information was restricted to Jesus Himself. Don't believe any teacher that sets a date and tells you when He's coming. They don't know. In fact, like I've always said, and I'll probably say this again next week, but if anybody sets a date for the return of Christ, that's a one day you could just about guarantee He won't come. No one knows. But that day will come. On that day, God will purge the universe with a roaring, consuming fire, and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. So to speak, the commander will return and he will appeal to the soldier charged with keeping a careful record of the actions of every soldier at the manor while the commander was away. He will come and he will hold us accountable. Ultimately, every molecule will be purged with fire and those separated from God will face his eternal judgment. This is not the myth, says Peter. This is the reality and we need to face it. Now again, I'm, I'm pretty sure you probably didn't come to church today wanting this message. Pretty sure this is not a passage many pastors choose to preach. I'm pretty sure a lot of churches avoid this passage very purposefully. There's difficult things here, and this is a message we just don't really like. It reveals hard truth that is not comfortable to hear. And we can hear the voice of our culture and of the doubts of our own heart. Come on, you really believe this stuff? He's not been here for 2,000 years. Where do you see God intervening with fire in our day? We're going to really believe that He's coming back and this is the end? This is nothing but a myth. And there's a direct assault upon our faith that comes from within and from without, and it is unrelenting. And the effects of it are that it changes the way we live our life. It changes the motivations that drive us to do what we do. In fact, we can even find voices from within the Christian church who make this very claim. Theologian Rudolf Boltmann, perhaps most 
clearly argued that we need to demythologize the Bible before we ever follow it. We need to realize notions such as the return of Christ and the judgment of the earth with fire. These are just myths, and if we can just remove the myth out of the Bible, then we can understand the truth behind it. No, says Peter, that's false teaching. This is the worldview of those whose spirits testify with God's spirit that they are the children of God. Jesus will return, we will give account for our lives to Him, and it is the height of folly to embrace any other worldview. He will come, and the judgment of God will indeed fall. And so for every one of us, we need to come before this truth, and we need to ask the question, do I believe this? Am I being motivated by this conviction, by this faith? Do I I trust it? count on it, recognize it, look forward to it, and does it affect the way that I live my daily life? How do I respond? Ironically, we can come out pretty much where the false teachers are by living every day virtually clueless to this coming accountability. There are others among us, perhaps, that do not know Christ as Savior, and having failed to come to embrace Him and trust Him, it's important that you come to recognize and see what God's Word reveals, that there is a final judgment of the ungodly. But the answer is not to become more godly. I mean, that is, in one sense, the goal, of course. But it's not ultimately your salvation to be a better person. And if you would hear this message and respond that way and say, well, I'm going to clean up the manor. I'm going to do my job. And I'm going to be sure that when Christ comes back, I'm better than my neighbor. That's a path in itself to destruction. The answer is not for you to become more godly in your own strength and to impress God as He returns. The answer is to know that your sins will render you guilty before God no matter how good you are in comparison with your neighbors. But the good news, can you take this home, verse 9? God is not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to come to embrace His forgiveness. A forgiveness that Jesus Christ purchased with His own blood, paying the penalty of your sin and dying in your place to pay that penalty. He gives to His people forgiveness, redemption, rescue, a standing before God that preserves you against judgment and invites you into the presence of God, not because you're religious, not because of how good you are, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done for you. This is the good news, that there is eternal life as we anticipate the destruction and the judgment of this planet. He's not willing that any should perish. So turn to Christ as your Savior today. There's coming a day 
when you will be very glad that you did. That day will be in the accounting before God, but I can guarantee you this, that day will also be the day that you receive Christ as your Savior. You will be glad. You will be glad in your soul in ways you cannot now understand. Come to the light of Christ. Receive Him as your Savior from eternity's judgment and from your sins today. He will forgive because He's paid the price. Let's bow together for prayer. I pray, Father, that we would all reach repentance. In light of the day of the Lord that will come like a thief, which judgment will fall, I pray that we will reach repentance. Help us to get each one of us to that place. For those that have not come there yet at this place in their life, I ask that you would open their eyes to see what they cannot see. I pray that they would get their eyes off of your page and look right at their own heart. knowing all they need to know that you're not willing that any should perish, I pray that they will trust what Christ has done to pay the penalty of sin and to provide forgiveness. For those of us who know you, I pray, God, that this time together, we didn't ask for it. This is a difficult passage to preach. It's a difficult passage to consider. It reminds us of our weakness, of our lack of faith. It reminds us of our... um, of how small we are in this world, what a minority we are. These are not things that we line up outside the door to hear. But Father, as you and your providence have led us to this book and through it verse by verse, we needed this. I needed this. And I pray, Father, that you will teach us to live with an eye fixed on our coming accountability before Christ. We as believers will see that as a matter to, of, in which we can rejoice. And yet to take seriously our call to honor the commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ through the apostles. Help us to be responsive, to live lives that bring pleasure to you in every area and every corner of our life. And I pray now that you will bring by your spirit conviction in the lives of your people where we are not preparing to meet you. Actions and attitudes and words and thoughts that are not good preparation by which to meet the King. I pray, Father, that you will do a unique work in us and that you will order our worldview to the realities of the revealed Word. And we know that in the end, this faith is a gift. And I pray that you'd pour it out on this assembly and upon your people throughout the world, continuing to open eyes of unbelievers to accept and receive this message of salvation in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.